Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for July, August and September 2012. Dealing with Paul's Epistles to the Thessalonians, it's brought to you by Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 3 for July 14-20, to 20, Thessalonica in Paul's Day. Sabbath afternoon, July 14. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Paul wrote so many interesting things that sometimes we get confused as we look at why he wrote some of the things that he did in this week's lesson. We pray that our hearts may be open to the wooing of your Spirit. We pray that your Word will come alive, that each of us may more fully understand your message for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Let's read that again, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And the key thought for this week is, a short study of the context of ancient Thessalonica demonstrates that Paul's approach to the citizens of Thessalonica was unique and carefully crafted. The primary focus of this lesson will be a summary of that which history, literature and archaeology tell us about Thessalonica. This material is important for two reasons. First, it helps us to understand how Paul's original hearers and readers would have understood him. In so doing, it clarifies the meaning of what he wrote and the impact it had back then on both church and society. Second, the more we know about the ideas and beliefs of the Thessalonians, the better we can understand that which against Paul was reacting. In order to promote the gospel, Paul would also have had to correct wrong ideas. So, while this lesson is not directly focused on the Bible, it sets the stage for our reading of the biblical text of First and Second Thessalonians during the rest of this quarter's lessons. Sunday, July 15, the Romans arrive in Thessalonica. Question. Read John chapter 11, verses 48 to 50. How were the political and religious decisions regarding the ministry of Jesus impacted by the arrival of the Romans in first century Palestine and Jerusalem? Think through the logic expressed here. In what frightening ways does it make sense? Well, let's read John chapter 11, verses 48 to 50. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. 
In the context of a civil war among the Greek city-states, the Thessalonians invited the Romans around 168 BC to take over their city and protect it from local enemies. The Romans rewarded Thessalonica for being on the right side of the civil war by largely allowing the city to govern itself. It became a free city within the empire, which meant that it could largely control its own internal issues and destiny. As a result, the wealthier and more powerful classes in the city were allowed to continue life much as they had before. They were, therefore, pro-Rome and pro-Emperor in Paul's day. But life was not nearly so pleasant for the common people, especially the working classes. There were three major negative aspects to Roman rule in Thessalonica. First, the arrival of the Romans brought economic dislocation. The usual markets were disrupted by war and changing governments, both locally and regionally. These disruptions hit the poorer classes harder than they did the more wealthy. Over time, this negative aspect became less significant. Second, Although Thessalonica remained largely self-governing, there was still a sense of political powerlessness. Some local leaders were replaced by strangers who had loyalties to Rome rather than to Thessalonica. No matter how benign, foreign occupation is not popular for long. Third, there was the inevitable colonial exploitation that accompanies occupation. The Romans required a certain amount of tax exportation, Percentages of crops, minerals and other local products would be siphoned off and sent to Rome to support the larger needs of the empire. So, while Thessalonica was quite a bit better off than Jerusalem, for example, Roman rule and occupation inevitably created significant stresses in local communities. In Thessalonica, those stresses were particularly hard on the poor and the working classes. As decades passed, these Thessalonians became increasingly frustrated and longed for a change in the situation. So to finish today, how does the current political situation in your community affect the work of the church? What kinds of things can or should your church do to improve its place and standing in the larger community? Monday, July 16, a pagan response to Rome. The pagan response to the powerlessness many Thessalonians felt was a spiritual movement scholars call the Kabiris cult. The cult was grounded in a man named Kabiris who spoke up for the disenfranchised and was eventually murdered by his two brothers. He was buried along with symbols of loyalty and the cult came to treat him as a martyred hero. The lower classes believed that Kabiris had exhibited miraculous powers while alive. They also believed that from time to time Kabiris quietly returned to life in order to help individuals and that he would return to bring justice to the lower classes and restore the city to its past independence and greatness. The Kabiris cult provided hope for the oppressed in terms reminiscent of the biblical hope. 
Things got even more interesting when we discovered that the worship of Kabiris included blood sacrifices to commemorate his martyrdom. Reminiscent of Paul, the Thessalonians spoke of participation in his blood. By this means, they obtained relief from guilt. Class distinctions were also abolished. In the Kabiris cult, all classes of society were treated equally. But there was one further dynamic. When the emperor cult arose in the time of Augustus, the Romans proclaimed that Kabiris had already come in the person of Caesar. In other words, the occupying authority co-opted the hope of the oppressed. As a result, the spiritual life of Thessalonica no longer provided relief for the working classes. The common people were left without a meaningful religion. The existence of the emperor cult also meant that if anyone resembling the real Kabiris were to arrive in the city, he would be an immediate threat to the establishment. The Roman response to the Kabiris cult left a spiritual vacuum in the hearts of the people, a vacuum that the gospel alone could fill. Christ was the true fulfilment of the hopes and dreams that the Thessalonians had placed on Kabiris. The gospel provided both inner peace in the present and at the second coming, the ultimate reversal of current economic and political realities. So to finish today, read 1 John 2, 15 and 17, and also compare that with Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11. What crucial truths are being expressed here? How have you experienced the reality of these words in regard to how fleeting and ultimately unsatisfying the things of this world are? Well, first of all, First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides for ever. And then Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, Madness! And of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great, I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants, and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So... I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind, 
there was no prophet under the sun. Tuesday, July 17, the Gospel as a point of contact. Given what we learned yesterday, it's not difficult to see why many non-Jews of the city responded positively when the Gospel came to Thessalonica. Whether or not Paul was aware of the Kabaris cult before arriving in the city, his messianic approach in the synagogue resonated with the unique spiritual longings of the local pagans. When the gospel came to Thessalonica, the working classes of the city were ready for it, and they responded in large numbers. They were also ready for extreme interpretations of the gospel. The Kabaris cult had enshrined in the people a spirit of rebellion against authority that may have been the source of the disorderly conduct that Paul addresses in his two letters to them in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. Let's have a look at those. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. And chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. And Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6, 7, and 11. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. What fundamental missionary strategy does Paul lay out in this passage? What potential danger lurks in this method? How can the two principles of this passage be kept in proper balance? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 27. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. And to the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. 
The gospel has the greatest impact when it impacts the needs, hopes and dreams of the audience. But while the Holy Spirit can provide bridges for the gospel, this normally happens as a result of much listening and prayerful experimentation on the part of those witnessing. Experience has also taught us that people are most open to the Adventist message in times of change. Among the changes that open people to new ideas are economic turmoil, political strife, war, weddings, divorce, dislocation, moving from one place to another, health challenges and death. The Thessalonians had experienced their fair share of change and dislocation, and this helped the gospel to take root. But people who are baptised in times of dislocation also tend to be unstable, at least at first. Most apostasies occur in the first few months after conversion. The letters to Thessalonica bear witness to considerable instability in the church in the months following Paul's original visit. So, to finish today... What can we do to help members who are still adjusting to their new life in Christ? Seek out someone new or even a younger person. What can you do to help this person to stay grounded and stable in the Lord? You'll be amazed to find out how much this kind of ministry will help to strengthen yourself as well. Wednesday, July 18, Paul the Street Preacher The first century Greco-Roman context experienced a proliferation of popular philosophers who, in public forums, sought to influence individuals and groups, similar to what street preachers might do today. These philosophers believed that people had an inner capacity to change their lives, a form of conversion. Philosophers would use public speech and private conversation in order, they hoped, to produce change in their students. They sought to create in their listeners doubts regarding their current ideas and practices. By this means, the listeners would become open to new ideas and change. The ultimate goal was increased self-reliance and moral growth. It was expected that such popular philosophers would earn the right to speak by first gaining moral freedom in their own inner lives. Physician, heal thyself, was a well-known concept in the ancient world. These philosophers were also aware of the need to vary the message in order to meet various minds and the importance of retaining integrity in both the character of the teacher and the message that was being taught. Thus, there are numerous parallels between these popular teachers and the work of Paul, who also travelled around and worked in the public places. We read about that in Acts chapter 17, verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And Acts 19, verses 9 and 10. But... When some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews 
and Greeks. There were, however, two significant differences between Paul's approach and that of these popular philosophers. First, Paul not only worked in the public places, he also sought to form a lasting community. This requires some separation from the world, along with the formation of emotional bonds and a deep commitment to the group. Second, Paul taught that conversion was not an inner decision affected by wise speech. It was instead a supernatural work of God from outside of a person. We can read what he says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. And that reads, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. And John chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And that reads being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's teaching was more than just a philosophy. It was a proclamation of the truth and the revelation of the powerful work of God in the salvation of humanity. The dark side of the popular philosophers was that they found an easy way to make a living. Plenty were hucksters, nothing more. Some would sexually exploit their listeners. Though honest teachers were among them, a lot of cynicism regarding travelling speakers existed in the ancient world. Paul sought to avoid some of that cynicism by generally refusing support from his listeners and instead doing hard manual labour to support himself. This, along with his sufferings, demonstrated that he truly believed what he preached and that he was not doing it for personal gain. In many ways, Paul's life was the most powerful sermon he could preach. Thursday, July 19, Home Churches Question. Read Romans chapter 16 verse 5, 1 Corinthians 16:19, Colossians 4:15 and Philemon verses 1 and 2. What do all these texts have in common? First of all, Romans 16 and verse 5. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphroditus, who is the first fruits of Archaea to Christ. And first Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. And Colossians chapter 4 
and verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. And Philemon, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow labourer, to the beloved Apira, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. In the Roman world, there were two main types of residences. There was the domus, a large single-family home built around a courtyard, typical of the wealthy. Such a home could provide a meeting place for 30 to 100 people. The other type of residence was the insula, with shops and workplaces on the ground floor facing the street and apartments or flats on the floors above. This was the primary urban housing of the working classes. One of these apartments or workplaces could normally accommodate only smaller churches. The domus and many of the insula would house an extended family, including two or three generations, employees of the family, business, visitors and even slaves. If the head of the household could be converted, it could have a great impact on everyone else living there. The ideal location for an urban house church would be near the city centre. The shops and workplaces connected to the house would foster contact with artisans, tradespeople, shoppers and manual labourers looking for work. This was the setting in which much of Paul's missionary journey may have been done. In some parts of the world, people still worship in home churches, often because that's all they have. And in some cases, they are not allowed to worship in public. And so a home church is their only option. Question. Read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. How do these verses help us to understand how Paul worked? After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was on the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. As a Roman citizen, and at one point a member of the Jewish elite, Paul must have been from the upper classes. If so, working with his hands would have been a sacrifice for him. However, by way of such labour, he identified with the working classes and reached out to them. And uh, we read more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. So to finish today, how well does your local church interact with the community? Are you part of that community, in the sense of being involved, or is your church locked in a siege mentality in which you isolate yourself from the dangers of the world so much so that you don't influence it at all.
Friday, July 20. From the book The Desire of Ages, page 32, we read, Providence had directed the movements of nations and the tide of human impulse and influence until the world was ripe for the coming of the Deliverer. At this time, the systems of heathenism were losing their hold upon the people. Men were weary of pageant and fable. They longed for a religion that would satisfy the heart. And from the same book, page 33, outside of the Jewish nation, there were men who foretold the appearance of a divine instructor. These men were seeking for truth, and to them the spirit of inspiration was imparted. One after another, like stars in the darkened heavens, such teachers had risen. Their words of prophecy had kindled hope in the hearts of thousands of the Gentile world. And from the book Gospel Workers, page 234 and 235, when Paul first visited Corinth, he found himself among a people who were suspicious of the motives of strangers. The Greeks on the sea coast were keen traders. So long had they trained themselves in sharp business practices that had come to believe that gain was godliness and that to make money, whether by fair means or foul, was commendable. Paul was acquainted with their characteristics, and he would give them no occasion for saying that he preached the gospel in order to enrich himself. He would seek to remove all occasion for misrepresentation, that the force of his message might not be lost. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week. 1. What do you think Ellen White meant when she wrote in today's further study that the spirit of inspiration was imparted to Gentile teachers? To what degree is God at work in the world of ideas outside the Christian context? Can a person be saved if they have never heard the name of Jesus? If so, on what basis? 2. In what context would a private home or apartment be an effective location for a church in today's world? Are designated church buildings always the best locations in which to worship? Why or why not? And three, how can your church learn to better adapt its outreach to the local community? That is, why must we always remember that what might work in one area might not in another? So to summarise this week's lesson, the biblical accounts of Paul's missionary activity are set in the context of ancient Rome. As we see Paul wrestling with everyday issues, we can learn how to better apply the principles and lessons that God placed in Scripture for us today. In First and Second Thessalonians, Paul was guiding ancient urban Christians through challenging times. And that brings us to Inside Story, our mission story for this week. And it's about Etienne, who's 22 and lives in a tent in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. It's titled Etienne's Second Chance. Etienne moved to Port-au-Prince, Haiti after floods destroyed her family's village. She was 18 and had nothing but her hope for a better life. She found a Seventh-day Adventist family with whom she could live. Etienne wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist and didn't want to attend church with her host family, but she went so they wouldn't ask her to move. Most Seventh-day Adventist churches in Haiti hold evangelistic meetings in January. Etienne's host family invited her to attend the meetings in their church. Etienne went to please her host, but she paid little attention to the speaker. Then, on January 12, 2010, the earth shook violently. Etienne and her host family staggered out of the house just moments before it collapsed. She stared in disbelief at the rubble around her. 
Once again she was homeless. Then she realized God had saved me again. Lord, she prayed, I think it's time to give my life to you. Etienne learned that the Mariah Adventist Church hadn't been destroyed, and she made her way to the church. The members welcomed her onto the church grounds and showed her a space where she could sleep outside with other now homeless people. She had no tent and no bed, so she flattened a cardboard box to make a bed. Someone offered her some rice and greens, but Etienne shook her head. She had no money to pay for them. You don't have to pay, the woman told her. Take it and eat. Gratefully, Etienne took the plate, stunned to think that someone would give her food. The next day, someone announced that there would be preaching that night. Etienne was surprised to see the same woman who had been preaching at the church her host family had taken her to. I knew that God was giving me a second chance to accept his love and salvation in my life, Etienne said. So that night, I surrendered my life to God. Etienne attended the baptismal class every afternoon and accepted the truth she was learning. A few weeks later, she was baptized. Life is difficult, she says quietly. I don't know what my future holds, but I know that God will take care of me. He's already shown me that. Haiti has more than 350,000 Seventh-day Adventist believers. Our mission offerings and a recent 13th Sabbath offering are helping the faithful believers spread the gospel of hope to the 9.7 million Haitians. This has been Dr. Percy Harold with a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia and brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful.